We are out today. I'm walking with my one person audience. Mary's along with me, and it is a not so cold. If you listen, you can hear a little squeak in the snow, but nothing too major. But it is a light snow and a heavy wind, whiteout conditions. Apparently, when you get outside of the you get outside of the woods, well, conditions are bad enough that school was canceled for because of those conditions. So, a little bit different day. Maybe you'll hear the wind blowing in the background. Um, I suggested in my last podcast that I wanted to address an issue of of self-deception or or a particular type of self-deception. And I suppose it it fits under a category that I have been considering a lot lately. And that is sort of the question of how is it that nice people get so messed up? Um, it, it seems to me that um, there are a lot of people who, who on first encounter you would say this is such such a nice person um, you know how, how would you expect anything why would you expect anything other than just you know freshly baked cookies and hot chocolate from somebody like this you know it, our image of a of a nice sort of grandmotherly influence and how would it how would it get so difficult to deal with and uh, I, I think that was what I how I swerved into this topic last night um, you know basically these these nice people who say I couldn't possibly be a tyrant because I'm too nice I'd never fit into that category and then the the adjunct to that is that I couldn't possibly be manipulative because I'm so self-sacrificing um, you know, I, I, I couldn't be manipulating to get something that I wanted. Um, and if I were manipulating to get you something that you wanted, well, that wouldn't be bad. And, of course, if I were getting, being manipulative to get you something which you didn't even know to want, but I, in my wisdom, knew that you should want, well, that would just be a, a further step a proof of my niceness. So, so I am really puzzled by this. How, how is it that, that I know um, rather a large number of people who seem to have been 
affected, um, who, who have been, who, whose niceness has not insulated them from becoming something rather grotesque. Um, and then maybe I can get at what do you do about it. I, I don't think I have an answer to that yet. So let me go over again the idea of what what I think niceness is. Well, that's not exactly the right way to talk about it. I don't. I'm not sure I know what niceness is. Um, I I don't know that niceness, the concept, has a very clear definition. Um, if you were to think of a, uh, let's say the, the, the girls, they just met some young man, um, it wouldn't exactly be a compliment if their comment was, well, he, he sure is nice, um, you know, it's almost like that there's something deficient in niceness. That niceness describes something that, rather than being something positive, it seems like nice a lot of times describes something that isn't really negative, but sort of like subconsciously you know there's something wrong with that. Um... If, if somebody did something and your response was, that's nice, it sort of carries with it in the common, I would argue, the common understanding that, that it isn't something that clearly fits into the negative, but it is missing some aspect. So I don't know if the proper way to look at it is describing what nice is. Although normally I would define my my terms, I think it's a it's a term that sort of describes the absence of something malicious without the replacement of something positively good. Um, that kind of is nice. Now it's related in the way we use it, I think, seems to be related to the idea of, of kind. Although kind is much more specific. So here's the way that I process it. So I, 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 let me define kind as opposed to too nice. Um, that, that kindness, I would see, is a... Uh, uh, a way of carrying yourself that would embolden people to take off their masks. As I encounter people, it seems to me that a lot of people feel like they have to wear a mask. We're right on a weather front and it's super windy, but the, the clouds just pulled back. And we stepped from a gray and windy day into 
Um, not complete sunshine, but enough sunshine that suddenly the shadows appear, and it's it's kind of a kind of a cool transformation. The uh, snow is still in the air from the wind, and I think some might be falling. Um, but it's a sunny snow, and it's beautiful. Um, but anyway, so I think most people feel like they have to wear some sort of, of mask, that they wonder about whether they're going to be ex- accepted, and because uh, sort, sort of a, a normal... Um, a normal affect, you would hide because the, the way the normal person would meet you, you would question whether um, you met their standard. But if you were to come to a kind person, um, you, would, you would be willing to take off that mask. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that that mask is something um, something nefarious. Um, if, if you were dragging yourself to work with, a, with a, a hurt back and doing your best to just go by you know, make it through the day despite the fact that you're in some level of pain. It would be the kind person who, uh, you know, you'd go past three or four people and say, hey, how are you? And you'd say, fine. And you'd move on. And then a kind person would be the person who would sort of like make it okay for you to admit your weakness. Um... Or admit your failure, admit your inadequacies. And I think usually people use masks um, more than to cover up evil intent. I mean, they can do that. Although I think that people who purposely put on a mask to cover up some, some nefarious aim, I think those masks are maybe a little... A little more clear. Uh, we just were reading in uh, the Fellowship of the Rings, and uh, Frodo says to Strider, if you're familiar with the story, um, Frodo says to, to Strider, "I think had you been um, from the from the dark side, um, that you would have seemed more fair and felt more foul." Um, so, so people who, who actively use a mask to cover, cover a negative motive seem to be a little bit easier to, to recognize. Um, but, but for large numbers of us, um, we put on a mask um, because of our inadequacies and our fears and whatnot. And the kind person, and kindness is a good thing. Kindness is the, kindness is the approach um, 
that, that allows you to take that mask off. And, and there are some people I have known in my life who are, who are kind and blunt. Who basically, and it's a bit awkward, that... Is part of being kind also not wearing a mask? Or whereas nice, the person who is nice wears a mask, so you, you have to wear a mask. And the person who's kind at least yes, lets you see behind their mask sometime. I, I think that that's probably a very much part of it, is it the person who is kind... Maybe it's impossible. Maybe it's impossible to tell people that they can take their mask off and continue wearing one yourself. Um, although, I, I don't know, because sometimes people, when you talk about inadequacies, I think somebody, somebody may be particularly... We talked about somebody who's hurting at work. It may be the very fact that they are suffering behind their mask that makes them very attentive to to the other. Um, so, so I think it, I think it's I think though that kindness does say we can be real, um, and I think that I think that it. I don't know if it if it categorically goes both ways, um, but I, I think that's what kindness is: is saying, um, "I'm going to behave in such a way that you can be real with me." And I would say that 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 very often includes being real yourself. So that's kindness. And I think kindness can, we can refer to it and be kind of vague, but at least it's something specific. So let's go to the other end, and, and somewhere in here is nice. And if you're kind, are you nice? If you're nice, are you kind? I don't think it's given that if you're nice, you're also kind. It may be that being kind also includes niceness, but we'll, I think it's the kind person I mean, I just, again, I imagine two girls talking about this guy who they met. And if they said he was kind, I'm pretty sure, I mean, it just seems in, in the manner of speaking, and, and that's not absolute, but in the manner of speaking, I think if you said we were, he, he was kind, they would have a specific act in mind. But if they said nice, they would just have an absence of evidence that he's malicious. Um, so again, somewhere, I don't, I don't know, There's, this nice is such a vague thing, but let me tell you what I think too nice is. This isn't the first time I've said it, but, but this is significant to me. I am convinced that too nice describes, so, so kind describe someone for whom you can take off a mask. But too nice 
describes someone who will allow you to knowingly put on a mask. And I think, I think very often that becomes a rather common expectation. Um, in polite society, it's as if, as if somebody will say, hey, I am going to lie to you and I'm expecting you to be nice enough not to, not to challenge me. Um, I can't think of a, a specific situation. A specific situation might, might compromise a specific relationship. But let me just lay it out there as that much. As I, I think a lot of times the expectation is, well, I'm counting on you to be too nice. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lie to your face. I'm going to put on this mask that you know isn't me and you are going to accept it. And here comes our daughter Abigail. Hi. We're good. I know. Um, Want to come have um, stir fry with us for lunch when we get home? Not yet. He's no, not home yet. Alright, no, I was going to come and get the sewing machine, but I'll wait until I have something to help me. Oh, probably a big deal. Won't be home. Because I'm not sure. I was just going to borrow the hat for that long. Okay. But I'll wait and come back later. Do you have the card? Yeah, I didn't get it yesterday because by the time I got to the top of the hill, I forgot. Thank you. All right. Well, we'll see you up there. We'll be back in... Well, no. I'm going to go home. Uh, okay. When the Highlander gets there, I could do some stuff at Susie's, so maybe I'll bring it over. Oh, that's cool. And then there's a couple envelopes in this. Here, It's not out the exhaust that it's burning it. All right. All right, I'll see you sometime this afternoon. I don't have to go get Lizzie because she had bad school off. No, apparently some places west it's so it's completely whited out.
We'll see ya. Okay, so, so maybe it's a good time to interrupt it. The idea of niceness, this, this, that we are nice enough to let each other lie, um, is too nice. And that, I think, I'm convinced of that. That's, that's not sort of a hypothesis. Since I have since I have developed that conceptual structure, I have seen over and over again how um, confirmations of that. But the question then is, well, what happens when you let someone lie to you? You, you knowingly say, okay, I, I know that it's a lie, but I will let you because I'm nice enough, I will let you, I will let you carry out that lie. Well, it's interesting that at that moment, it becomes self-deception. And self-deception is such an odd thing. Because I would say that it shouldn't be possible that it shouldn't be possible to deceive yourself. You, if, if, if you are lying to you, you know that you are lying. And so self-deception should not, should not even be a thing. And yet, it's one of the things, interestingly, that the that the New Testament warns about several times. Um, and, and I've come to believe it's a, it is very possible. I, I haven't thought about the, the structure of our brain. Um, I mean, one, one of the ways to look at personalities is not as them being parts of us, but as our head being full of a lot of different personalities that stem from different parts of our brain. So you have um, obviously deeply rooted the need to eat. And so the hungry you, it's not that you who has hunger, it's almost more like you is a coalition of personalities but when the hungry you steps forward, it, it takes over all of who you are. And you suddenly don't worry about a lot of other important parts of you because the hungry you steps forward um, in, a, in a kind of profound way. And that is who takes over. Um, so I suppose that somebody... I don't know if anyone's done it. I've never come across it, but I'm not super well-read in psychology. But self-deception um, is, is, is a real thing. You can tell yourself a lie to the point that you believe that lie. The question is, what then happens 
who do you become? Are you the person who told the lie? Are you the person... It seems that you aren't anymore the person who knows that you're lying. So then it's, are you the person who lied to yourself or are you the person who believes a lie? And here's the problem. In self-deception, you forget that there's two of you. Now, I will tell you that it's suboptimal to be divided. But it's better to be divided than to split and have one half of you go invisible. So, I talked a, a lot about the, the, the conceptual structure of sin in the Bible. Um, this is one of those answers that was given to me before I knew there was a question. So I remember being very young and being told that there are different different words for sin. And one of this one of the forms of sin was a an archery term. It was missing the mark. Um, There's also a concept of sin um, that was doing something morally wrong. And uh, I forget what the other two were. But the concept of, of sin being this archery term, that means you were aiming at something and you missed it, is a really fascinating idea. And I think it's, it, it may be one of the most important ideas about sin. Um, it's, it's the idea of sin that makes sin a whole lot more your business than you realize. Because nobody can forgive you for missing the mark. That's, that's the problem. If, if I stole from you, I broke a moral law. And you could say, okay, pay me back and we'll be good. Or you could say, oh, you're a nice guy, you can keep it and I'd be good. Um, but if I decided that I believed stealing was wrong and I stole from you, then I split. And suddenly I am the person who the person who stole and the person who told myself don't steal. And which of me is the real me? The, the example I've used in others is, you know, I walk by the cheesecake and I say, I'm not going to have a third piece. And then a little bit later I say, oh, I'll have it. And, and now, what did I do? I set a mark. You know, I, I verbalized it, or even if I didn't verbalize it, I conceptualized a mark. I had a name. I was, I was shooting at something, not having the third piece of cheesecake. And then I missed that. Well, which is, which is the real me? Which is the me that I ought to address? I mean, what's the proper response? Should I totally condemn myself 
because I told myself not to do it and I went ahead and did anyway? Maybe I should. Maybe, maybe I should condemn myself and, and, and punish myself in some way. Or there's a part of me that says, hey, it's not that big a deal. It's just another piece of cheesecake. Well, is that the me I should listen to? Well, you can see how those me's cancel each other out. And I will tell you that it is because of sin that we need a Redeemer. The, the need for Jesus Christ doesn't stem from God picking some things to say he's going to be mad at. And then, and then we have to get his special... Um, special envoy to forgive us for the things that he made a big deal out of. Um, that that structure, I mean, it depends on what what particular sin you are um, you are looking at. That could seem kind of ridiculous. Um, but but I don't think that's at all where the deepest need for a redeemer comes from. The deepest need for somebody to come and atone for our sin comes from the fact that, that I just said that I am the one who wants to stop at two pieces of cheesecake and I don't want to eat the third. And then I became the person who did it anyway. And I don't know what to do about that. Now what I'm telling you is that is, is a conundrum. That is a serious problem. But one of the reasons why that serious problem can seek a solution is because you're very aware of it. Um, maybe you aren't conscious of it, but I think you are aware of it. Um, the, 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 the scriptural principle of guilt I think would be very much tied to that. Guilt is what you feel when, when you had a goal. Not that someone put upon you. That would be more like conviction. Um, when someone externally says, hey, I'm telling you this is wrong, don't do it, and you do it, then, then your problem is with their authority. But when you... When you... When you tried to rule yourself and, and you weren't able to, then the idea would be is, is that would be guilt. And that phenomena would not come from Ten Commandments coming down from Sinai. But that phenomena of guilt, and this is one of the reasons why I think guilt is so widespread and people who try to account for it in terms of a moral failure have trouble with the fact that people feel guilty and that is because guilt is the proper properly describes that that feeling of being split now what you do with guilt is uh is a really fascinating thing. I will tell you this. 
denying the phenomena is probably the worst thing you can do with guilt. And yet that is, I think, what the Western mind has done mostly, is when you feel guilty, um, people say, well, don't feel guilty. To the point that it is almost a cliche. Someone will tell me, well, I shouldn't feel guilty about this, but I do. And what are they saying? They're saying, I not only feel guilty, I feel guilty for feeling guilty. Well, why do you feel guilty for feeling guilty? It's because we have a, a mindset in, in the West, I think primarily, that says, well, don't feel guilty. And that's not really an option. And that's not really an option because I'm convinced that guilt comes from missing the mark not from failing to meet an external command. It can come from failing to meet an external command, but I think the guilt is more central. So the guilt is far more widespread. The phenomena of guilt happens without a structure of morality. It happens because you told yourself, you set an aim and then you missed it. Why is this all important? Well, I'm telling you that guilt is a powerful force. And it is a powerful force that tells you, hey, you are split right now. And you need to do something to get yourself back into one. Self-deception, however, is a split that as soon as you split, you lose track of the fact that there ever was the other half. So, so if I say, I'm going to deceive myself, and then I am successful. The minute I am successful, I forget that I ever split. I am only the one thing that believed the lie. I am not the thing that told the lie. I am not struggling with guilt and trying to put myself back together, looking for some source of atonement that will make me... Isn't the word atonement so fascinating? If you break it up, what is the word? It's at one meant. That's what atonement is. We've used this word, we throw it around. But if you just read the word... Now, I don't, I don't know how much, because that's English, and that's not the language it was in. And yet, when you find these deep connections in language, I don't think they are, they are coincidental. So we were looking for someone to make us at one. We needed Jesus to at one us. And, but even before it was Jesus, we knew that we needed something to at one us. Something had to put us back together. And my my idea is that when you deceive yourself, what happens is you lose the need to be made one. Because it is a unique sin. Self-deception is a unique sin in that self-deception divides you and then erases the existence of one half. So how does that look? All of this started with the question of how do people who are nice get so messed up? 
And I think this is it. Is that being nice, rather than it being a specific act with a specific motive, being nice is this absence of an, of an act. This absence of, of something. There's nothing bad. It's nice. Well, then that absence is preyed upon, maybe, or, or allowed, to, allowed to express itself. And you say, okay, you know, I was kind enough to let you be real. But now I am going to be nice enough to let you lie to me. But because I am deciding to let you lie to me, you aren't the deceiver and I am the deceived. It shifts. I am my own deceiver. And I say, well, I will just ignore. I'll just ignore the fact that you just put on a mask. I will accept your lie to me, which I know is a lie. I will accept it as the truth. And, and in that act, now for a while, I think you remain at odds with it. But at some point, it becomes not who you are, but it erases who you are. You suddenly become one half of something, and you don't know what it is. Because you don't even realize that you need to be, that you need atonement. You don't need at one moment because you think there's only the you. And that you is this person that isn't anything but nice. And, and I, I would say that describes people I know. Is that all they have is nice. They've lost track of who they are, but they know they're nice. Which I think brings me to the circle of the, the, the people who say, I couldn't possibly be a tyrant. I'm too nice. What they have is nice. That's all they have. And they don't know, they don't know what it is. It's not something real for them to express or be around. They're puzzled. And that that is how I am hypothesizing that nice people can become such a difficult category of people to deal with. Because they're very aware of their niceness. Specifically because they've lost track of everything but their niceness. So, that is our walk. My wife is going in to make us some lunch. I'm going to go try and start the truck. But a windy, a windy day and a great walk. I wish you all happy trails until we meet again.